0: Welcome to episode 10 of A Thought for Food, a special series within the Science and the City podcast produced by the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science at the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Episode 10, Bad Milk Gone Good. This is the third episode in our series examining that most American meal, the cheeseburger and fries. And today... We come to the thing that puts the cheese in cheeseburger. Which is, you know, cheese. To begin with, we need to discuss the source of cheese, which is, of course, milk. And milk is the very stuff of life, if, like me, you happen to be a mammal. It's the one food product that we as mammals, or at least those of you who are female, can produce in your bodies, and it's incredibly potent stuff. It contains all of the nutrition a young mammal needs to get through its first stage of life, the stage where it's doing most of its growing and learning, and therefore has the greatest nutritional need. Sometime around 9,000 years ago, as part of that same Neolithic agricultural revolution that gave us bread, which we discussed in the last episode, human beings figured out that the milk of other mammals was also packed full of nutrition, and we began domesticating and keeping animals for their milk. All different kinds of animals. In different parts of the world, cows, sheep, goats, horses, yaks, water buffalo, camels, elk, and reindeer have all been kept to be milked for food. The most popular milk animal worldwide though, by far, is our friend the cow. And dairy farming is a huge and important sector of American agriculture. Here's someone we met in the first episode of this season, Ben Freund, a dairy farmer from Connecticut. And he's going to walk us through the modern process of getting milk from cows.
1: Yeah, we milk about 260 cows twice a day.
0: And how much milk? I mean, how much milk did that? So
1: produce? today we shipped a little over nine ton of milk. Wow. So you're talking a little over 70 pounds per cow. That's that's an average day.
0: I want to set the scene for you a little bit of what it's like to walk around Ben's farm. There are maybe 500 cows in different stages of development about half of whom are mature, active milking cows, who are milked twice a day. All of his animals are organized by age and kept in a series of huge barns.
1: So, like, all the two-year-olds are in here. They got a, Like they have a pecking order, and it's a pretty strong pecking order. And So you, you leave them by themselves with the younger animals, and they get along, so that's social. And then over here, those are the cows that aren't yet pregnant, because we keep them barefoot and pregnant, because in order to get milk, you got to have a calf. So those are the ones that are... Becoming pregnant or they're you know coming into heat and we're breeding them and hopefully getting them pregnant. And then after that they go to the far side and that's where they're they're uh, diagnosed pregnant and they finish out their lactation.
0: How often do they have to calf to keep milking?
1: So about about once a year, but sometimes you can extend the lactation. I mean if they don't get bred right away they'll they'll keep milking and then until you stop milking them and then they'll dry up.
0: Once you get over the physical shock of being in such close quarters with so many enormous animals, you realize that almost nothing about the way Ben's cows live and spend their day is haphazard. He impressed upon me over and over again during our talk that cows only produce milk well when they're happy and healthy. So like all dairy farmers, he's spent an enormous amount of time and care in designing his barns so that they're a place the cows will be comfortable and content.
1: These cows they need three things, three things to be productive animals, and then basically get out of the way and, and let them produce, because they got to have fresh air, fresh water, and a nice place to lay down. If you can do that for your cows, and you need to do that for your cows, then it's a matter of, they'll, they'll work for you night and day and, and make lots of milk and, you know, and it, it's, it's actually a great relationship that way. You provide the basics for them, get out of their way, and let them produce. That's what they want to do. That's what they're bred for. Of course,
0: this idea of designing the cow's daily life around their needs and comfort especially applies to the actual process of milking, which is the whole point of the operation. Cows, it turns out, are very much creatures of habit, and it's crucial for their psychological well-being that they do everything in a particular order and on a consistent daily schedule. Once a particular group of cows gets used to filing into the barn where they are milked, called a milking parlor, at a particular time, and in a particular order, they'll just line up and file in that way all on their own, often without any prompting from the farmers.
1: You can see that they're gonna come in, and they'll, they'll sequence themselves, and, and the way that they choose to come in is the way that they always come in. The number one cows, they're all number one cows. It goes back to what I was telling you before. You can do anything with these cows as long as you do it at their pace and let them get used to it at their pace. And, and like the, the absence of scaring them or doing something silly in here or having some kind of a negative uh, association, and they just kind of march in the way they want to do it. And there's some, her, some uh, herds where they'll come in and they just open the rear gate and they'll come in on their own.
0: After the cows file in and find their places, the farmhand who is doing the milking begins by massaging some lotion into each of the four teats on each cow's udder.
1: Or if it's at the end of the teat, gets a little bit um, dilated. So what he applies there is an iodine with it's got a, um, a bunch of good stuff in it, like uh, your hand creams, and uh, that takes and, and softens the, the teat, especially this time of year. And also, it's got the iodine in it that sanitizes the end of the teat, which is very important. He's going to come through next, and he's going to dry that cow, and he's going to apply the machine. While he's doing that, the cow, which is, is you know, as strange a situation as this may seem but she's getting stimulated to let her milk down. She's actually relaxing into all this. The the sounds of the parlor, the, the motions of the guy that's milking, and the actual physical touch are all stimulating her to let her milk down.
0: The machine is a breast pump, basically the same as a human mother might use, but on a much larger scale. And it works by simulating the suckling
1: of a calf about uh, 13 inches of vacuum in there and then you got that pulsation. The pulsation allows the relaxation. So it, it gives a sense of like think of a calf sucking a cow, just sucking away there. So, so it's, it goes 60 beats a minute and then there's a ratio of, of rest and, and uh, suction. When the
0: cow is, as they say, milked out for this session, the machinery senses the change in pressure and drops off the teats automatically.
1: Right, so there's some cows that are coming in here that will uh, be, be dropping 60 pounds of milk. Wow. Okay, so you're, you're almost 8 gallons of milk. Is that a good? And, is that would be the time. T- each cow starts off lactation, peaks, and then comes down gradually to the end of her lactation. So what they, what and then she get, needs the calf again to go back up. Right. So she gets there, we give her a rest period of about uh, 6 or 8 weeks and then uh, they come back in the cab and they come back flush into production again. And he's doing five cows at a time and that's giving them the, the proper uh, amount of stimulation time for that cow so that when he, that machine goes on, boom, she's, she's ready to go.
0: As we talked about in the last episode, one of the results of that huge agricultural revolution of nine or so thousand years ago was that the average daily diet of human beings decreased sharply in its nutritional value because people started eating mostly grains in the form of bread and beer, which have a ton of carbohydrates, but very little in the way of other essential nutrients. Well, milk, it turns out, has a lot of those missing things. One of the most important is an essential mineral called calcium. Here's one of our regulars, Dr. Michael McBurney from the firm DSM.
2: Well, calcium is a mineral. Um, it's needed for strong bones and teeth. Um, over ninety-nine percent of our calcium in our body is actually in our bones and in our teeth. So, is
0: our bones actually made of calcium? Is it mm-hmm. actually
2: it, not exclusively? There are other minerals in there, like potassium, but they are predominantly a form of calcium bonded with oxygens and hydrogens. Um, but it also is in all of our other tissues and in our circulatory system um, and in cells as ionized or calcium. And in that role, it plays a really important part of, of managing and helping manage a lot of signaling systems, signal transduction, nerve transmission, muscle movement. And so we regulate the amount of calcium that's sort of in this ionized form and available very, very closely. And really our bones act as a big store, a reservoir, if we're not consuming
0: enough calcium from our diet. Your body very carefully regulates its calcium levels by using another essential nutrient, vitamin D. As with all micronutrients, not getting enough calcium and or vitamin D can cause some terrible and debilitating deficiency diseases. In this case, ones that have to do with softening and malformation of the bones. Osteoporosis and rickets. And bones continuously remodel. So we think of bones
2: as being those you know, hard steel parts that are inside that the rest of our body hangs off of. Um, but it's continuously being broken down and rebuilt. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that calcium intake and vitamin D status is important throughout our life because we sort of accumulate bone density until we're in our mid-30s, then it starts to drop off. Um, But by having good calcium intake plus adequate vitamin D, we have a better chance of continuing that remodeling so it doesn't Um, diminish and become brittle or thin which is really what osteoporosis is when you still have the bone structure but most of the solid part has been removed so it's like it becomes sponge like in a sense with big holes in the middle of it yeah and for little children what happens with rickets is the bones don't develop normally they don't get big and long and, and healthy because there's inadequate bone formation because of a lack of vitamin D and inadequate calcium deposition.
0: And is it, I suppose it's, in, it's concentrated in dairy products because baby animals need to build bones.
2: Exactly. And so milk was a rich source because
0: that's a way
2: that if you think that a mother could store calcium during her growth and pregnancy and then can transfer calcium from her body to the infant through nursing.
0: And so, while a diet of only bread is pretty terrible, a diet of bread and milk isn't too bad. You're still missing some things, but it fills in a lot of the gaps. Here's Dr. Paul Kinstead. He's a professor of nutrition at the University of Vermont.
3: Well, milk is, uh, you can break it down into five major constituent. Water, most abundant constituent, as you'd expect. It's a liquid. Uh, There's fat. There's protein. There's lactose, which is a carbohydrate. And then minerals, particularly calcium and phosphorus. Calcium phosphate are are really key minerals in terms of nutritional importance of milk. Uh, There are vitamins. Vitamin A uh, is particularly important
0: in in milk. You know, there's riboflavin and beta carotene. So, Domesticating animals and milking them had the potential to be a kind of Neolithic superfood, a single product that could dramatically improve people's nutrition and overall health year-round. There were a couple of problems, though. First, its shelf life is next to nothing. Without refrigeration, which didn't become readily available until the late 19th century, in warm weather, milk goes bad less than a day after coming out of the cow.
3: In the Near East, where this was happening, uh, 7,000 B.C., it's a warm environment. If that milk was stored for any length of time, it would, because of the natural microflora in milk, the bacteria that are always present in milk environments, lactic acid bacteria, they produce lactic acid, and very quickly,
0: um, that milk would sour or coagulate due to acid production. A second problem was that a huge percentage of ancient people were allergic to that sugar he just mentioned, lactose, which is unique to milk. When they ate it, it caused all kinds of stomach problems, diarrhea and so forth.
3: It took another 1,500 years for human populations to develop adult lactose tolerance. The the lactase persistence genetic capability didn't happen until about 5,500 B.C. So 7,000 B.C. to 5,500 B.C., 1,500 years, they couldn't drink the milk as adults.
0: What people eventually discovered is that by using natural preservatives like salt and high heat, things that slow the growth of bacteria, you could control that spoiling process so that milk would coagulate without going sour. So it's a selective
3: concentration process. The solids components in the milk, primarily fat and protein, or a fraction of the proteins called casein as well as minerals, the separation of those solids components from the water phase of the milk and all that's dissolved in the water phase.
0: What you wind up with is a mass of lumpy solids called curds floating in a thin liquid called whey. Remove the curds from the whey, and voila, the simplest form of cheese. And cheese solves both of those problems. It's much lower in lactose than plain milk, And depending on how you make it and store it, it can stay edible for weeks and months, even years.
3: And so milk had limited value to them until they realized that they could take that curd and separate the whey off and then be able to consume moderate amounts of that curd without the awful effects of lactose intolerance.
0: Now, it's worth saying that cheese, in any form, is not nutritionally identical to milk. For one thing, cheese doesn't have quite the same range of micronutrients that whole milk has. This is because of something we explored in episode 2 of last season. Some vitamins are stored only in fat, and some are stored only in water. You might call this the Jack Sprat rule of micronutrients. So, because much of the water is lost when the milk curdles and becomes cheese, the water soluble vitamins that were present are also largely lost. They wash away in the whey.
3: If you've ever seen cheese whey, it's it's greenish tint, and that's the riboflavin. that's in the milk that is in the water phase, and when you remove the water, the riboflavin is carried by the water into the whey, and it gives it that greenish tint. So riboflavin isn't, isn't concentrated in the cheese, unlike vitamin A.
0: As he just hinted, though, the vitamins and minerals that are left, such as vitamin A and calcium, become concentrated in the cheese, and there's actually much more of them in cheese than there would be in an equivalently sized glass of milk. Once the basic process of cheese making was discovered, it spread all over the world, and a galaxy of variations and refinements developed.
3: Once that technology was, was discovered, Neolithic peoples around this time were on the move in all directions out of the out of the fertile crescent region and particularly out of Turkey and so they brought that technology they conserved it culturally very very meticulously because it gave Neolithic peoples an enormous competitive advantage in terms of, of their nutrition, their survival and so they continued to make cheese wherever they went and they went in every direction for thousands of miles and one of the directions was north and northwest up through the, the Balkan peninsula to the the Danube River, all the way into Central Europe, and then picking up the Rhine River Valley all the way up to the North Sea, and then eventually by 5000 BC they jump the English Channel and end up in the the British Isles, and bringing this this simple cheesemaking technology with them all the way. As the culture develops and cheesemaking begins to settle in as a survival strategy, the environments in which these peoples are finding themselves, the physical environment, the cultural environment, the you know the, the temperature, the humidity, the topography, geography, and on and on and on, cause cheesemakers in different places to begin to do things, to, to adjust to the environment in different ways, adjust their technology in ways that make sense.
0: Probably the most important technical innovation that allowed cheesemaking to blossom in all those ways was the discovery that using something called rennet accelerates that coagulation process and so allows you to make cheeses that have much less water in them and are therefore much firmer and can be aged much longer rennet is an enzyme found naturally in the stomach lining of ruminant animals like cows and sheep now stomach lining juice may seem like a strange thing to add to your milk But you have to remember, this is all Stone Age technology. People hadn't figured out how to make things out of metal yet, and pottery was a brand new invention. So a popular way to carry and store liquids like water or beer or milk was to make a kind of pouch out of the stomach or bladder of a slaughtered animal by sewing the ends up. So what probably happened is that people noticed when they stored milk in a stomach pouch, it coagulated better and faster. Pretty soon, they were adding pieces of stomach lining to the recipe when they were making cheese, no matter what kind of vessel it was stored in. And then we were really off and running as far as the varieties of taste and texture cheese could take. Without using rennet, you're limited to making very soft cheeses with short shelf lives, like cottage cheese or cream cheese. Rennet opens the door to everything else. Cheddar, mozzarella, parmesan, the whole smorgasbord.
3: Rennet-coagulated cheeses have enormous ranges in terms of moisture content and salt content and acidity, and so there's an almost infinite number of combinations of moisture, salt, and acidity that are possible that that have very different chemical characteristics that influence enzymes and microorganisms and physical chemical changes that happen during storage that... Carry that cheese in different directions in terms of flavor and texture development. You know, you think about a blue cheese versus a white mold cheese versus a feta cheese versus a, a gouda or a, a cheddar or a parmesan. These are all rennet coagulated cheese. And those adjustments and the differences in environment, the differences in, in the natural microflora in the region, and the, what the animals are eating, the botanicals in the in the pastures, and the temperature and humidity and access to um, natural features like caves, underground caves and and, uh, sort of constant temperature, humidity environments that would have to be of natural origin at that point because there's no refrigeration or climate control. You know, the differences in in different places then shape cheesemakers and and their technology and, and their chemistry in different ways that ultimately give rise to very different cheeses that make sense for that context, that particular place um, that the cheesemakers are in. The cheeses always fit the environment.
0: This whole story of cheesemaking, like the stories of bread making and the domestication of animals that we told in the first two episodes of this season, are really part of a larger narrative the long and deep history of humanity seeking creative ways to solve the very real difficulty we've often had in feeding ourselves throughout our existence on this planet. When one source of food runs out, what's the next source going to be? How can we take inedible things and make them edible? How can we take things that spoil quickly and make them last longer? To put it simply, how are we going to get through the winter? Or this drought? Or this flood? Well... Next time, we're going to tell two more chapters of that story that can be found right here in our cheeseburger dinner. The stories of our condiments, ketchup, and pickles. The quest for the everlasting vegetable. Next time on A Thought for Food. Thanks to our experts in this episode, Ben Freund, Michael McBurney, and Paul Kinston. This podcast was a production of Science in the City and the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, not-for-profit programs of the New York Academy of Sciences. To learn more about the Sackler Institute, please visit us on the web at nyas.org slash whatwedo slash nutrition, on the Sackler Institute group on LinkedIn, and on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sackler Nutrition Science where you can see photo galleries from our visits to some of the places we feature in this series, including Freud's Dairy Farm. And please also feel free to give us your feedback on this or any Science in the City program via email to nyas.org.